Father, these are tremendous words, as was said by, by John there at the end, that to think of the perfection of your love for us and your Son, the perfection of the sacrifice once for all for our sin that has reconciled us to God, that reconciliation we receive by faith as we've trusted in Christ and all of your work in Him and in Him alone, even the faith in which we trust is itself a gift from you. To you be all the glory and praise and honor. And we delight to give it to you, for to you it rightly and only belongs. We pray now that as we hear you speak to us through your word, that you would give us understanding. Help us to consider the things as we consider the book of 1 John and the the matter of spiritual life. Pray that we would be encouraged and challenged and Even for some, it may be today the realization that they long for what they don't really have, and they come to know it in truth in Christ. However you would use your word, we pray that you would be glorified in it, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 John, the book of 1 John. Uh, If you're visiting with us this morning, we're usually going through the Gospel of Matthew, but we are taking a break this morning. And we'll be looking at 1 John and the topic of the heart of spiritual life. I think I heard, I wasn't in here, Mike mentioned that next week we'll have Pastor Malvaso. Many of y'all will remember um, Pastor Malvaso, Tim, and so it'll be good to reconnect with him next week. But this morning we're going to look at the issue of spiritual life, the heart of spiritual life in the book of 1 John. This great little epistle, I'm sure you know where it is, it's in the back. Uh, Just keep turning right a little bit uh, past Matthew. Near the end. The letter was written by the author, of course, who bears its name. You'd think that was a rather simple fact, but these things are always much discussed against the elite scholars. But in fact, it was, just as it says, written by the Apostle John after he wrote the Gospel of John. And it is before us here, a letter in which he addresses the most important matter of spiritual life or eternal life. Uh, It's all the same, the life of God, the life that is in Christ Uh, Eternal life, as it's defined particularly by John. Now, John has many reasons for writing, and of course the theme of it is also something much discussed. But he gives us a hint throughout uh, the epistle. And so what we're going to do is just look at a few of these major themes in the Gospel of John. So we'll be, be ready to flip back and forth. And to begin that with, then we'll see some of his reasons for writing this letter. He says in chapter, or chapter 1, verse 4, he says, These things we write so that our joy may be complete. So everything that is contained in here about the spiritual life that he'll describe is so that those who hear might have joy, might share in the joy that he and the others have. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, so you may have joy. So you may not sin, so you may be kept from the error of disobedience. He says in verse 26 of chapter 2, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. So he wants to make truth clear. He wants to clear away the fog of some erroneous teaching that was going around. But he says in summary form in verse 13 of chapter 5, and really this could be seen as the theme of the book, He says in verse 13, These things I have written to you, of chapter 5, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
And that really is probably the main purpose of the epistle. He's writing to those who have professed faith in the Son of God that they might know, that they might have confidence, as it were. They might have the comforts of the reality of knowing that they actually possess the eternal life that God has revealed and provided in Christ. In that way, it's not unlike the ending of the gospel. You might remember after his resurrection, after his appearance to Thomas, John makes this comment. He says, therefore, and this is the gospel. Don't turn there, I'll just read it. Chapter 20, verse 30. He says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So the reason for the gospel of John was so that he could reveal Christ and present him in a way and his life and all the ways that God attested to his person and his work. And that in that revelation of Christ that those who read the gospel would believe and have life in his name. Whereas his purpose for the epistle is that those who have placed their faith in Christ might have confidence that they do, in fact, possess this life that is in Christ. So the gospel is that you may believe, and the epistle is so that you may know. That you may know. And this is so incredibly crucial. Knowing that we have spiritual life is at the heart or at the base of every Christian comfort and every Christian confidence is to know that, in fact, We possess spiritual life, that Christ is ours and that we are His and that everything that God has accomplished in Him we participate in is truly our possession by grace. Now he defines this spiritual life in a broadest sense there in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says it is this. He says, so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And of course the beginning of this fellowship is with the Father, through Christ, and then those who have that fellowship with God then enjoy that fellowship together with everyone who believes and has life in His name, who indeed has spiritual life. Now, there are a variety of ways in which we could approach this epistle. What we're going to do this morning is simply look broadly at some of the themes that John traces throughout this epistle. That relate, of course, back to the gospel as well that describe and identify the reality of spiritual life. And so what does it really mean to have eternal life? What does that mean? What does that look like? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does that look like? What does it look like, not only in terms of the outward life, but in terms of the inward affections, in terms of who we are on the inside and how we relate to God through Christ? What is that? Well, those are some of the questions that John will answer for us this morning. And so I want to begin, we're going to do that. This outline is in your bulletin. It's not particularly an inspired outline, but it will at least be some way to guide our thoughts as we go through here. And the first one is this. The first thing we want to consider then is spiritual life as John clarifies it against some of the false views of spiritual life that were infesting the church, that were infecting, uh, infecting the church with wrong ideas about what it means to know Christ, what it means to be... Uh, belonging to God and to have union with Him. So now, one of the main errors that John is writing about, and I would make a note here that 
in writing and addressing these areas, he clarifies for us the truths of spiritual life. And, and that's just important to recognize at the beginning, that most of the New Testament was written to correct errors, if you might remember that. It is to correct errors. God has clarified truth for us against the backdrop of errors. And so that's what he's doing here in the epistle of John. Now, it's been most commonly understood and is largely correct that John is writing against what is known as an early form. It's not the full-blown form of this. It wouldn't come around until really about the second century. But he's writing against something known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was, in its most general kind of sense, the belief that, and the idea of Gnosticism is knowledge, is that there could be a special relation or connection to God through the Spirit and that there was a special knowledge that a teacher could have, and that this special knowledge of the teacher was necessary for one to truly have a knowledge of God and to have a relationship with Him. That's in a general sense what it is. But John is going to address some of the specific teachings, and this is going to be very helpful for us to think about, first, what is some general characteristics of spiritual life. Well, one of the teachings of Gnosticism was this. That the spirit is good and the flesh is bad. You've probably heard that before. That the spirit is good and that the flesh is bad. That whatever is of the spiritual realm and is of our spiritual nature is pure, is holy, is untouchable by evil. But the flesh, it's full of what is wicked and tainted with unrighteousness and, and so on. And therefore, part of their teaching was that committing acts of sin don't really affect the spiritual life because this flesh and the spirit, they, they exist on two different realms. They're, they operate in two different spheres, and so one can't really pollute the other. And so he addresses this, and this would, this would actually be, if you think these things are far removed, somewhat akin today of what we might give titles of easy believism or non-lordship salvation. Those aren't necessarily great titles, but they're the titles that we have anyway. In other words, it's not too far off in its general idea. It's, there's differences, but the general idea of those who say today that a person can be saved and be right with God and have eternal life and yet have a life of sin or disobedience to God. But yet that doesn't really affect their salvation. They should, could remain secure in their salvation or somebody that could say, yes, they've been born again, but there's no way that that displays itself in their life in terms of obedience to God. So this really isn't some far-off removed thing. It's the, the seeds of ideas that always are infecting us in our fallenness. Now, John's answer to that, those who would say, well, it doesn't really matter if you have a life of sin because that's of the physical realm and the spiritual realm is really untainted. You can still know God. John's answer to that is this, in part. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. In other words... He makes clear to us and to them that there is no spiritual life where there is not a habit of obedience to God's commandments. There's no spiritual life where there is not the habit and the pattern of obedience to God's word. He says it a bit more strongly in verse 7 of chapter 3. He says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous 
just as he is righteous, verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. It's a pretty striking contrast, and yet those are the two categories that there are. And so John says there is no spiritual life where there is no holiness of life, where there is no pattern of obedience. And he also says there is no spiritual life where there is no recognition of personal sin, both in nature and both in acts. Look what he says at chapter 1. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And he says in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So another part of this then, he's saying his basic spiritual life is the recognition of personal sin. And the distinction here of what the Gnostics would teach and those who would say, uh, is this basically, is that not even just acknowledging that the flesh is bad and sin exists and it's around me, but no, it's saying that, look at what he says, we have not sinned. This is personal. In other words, basic to spiritual life is the recognition that you are a sinner. I mean, that's, that's, we use that all of the time, but that is the reality of it. That if someone is a Christian, if someone has eternal life abiding in them, there is a constant awareness of the need to confess sin. There is a constant awareness of the need to rely on Christ and His forgiveness and the grace that is in Him. There is what Jesus described at the beginning of the kingdom of, of the Sermon on the Mount, that there is a poverty of spirit. There is a mourning over sin. That's the same idea here. That there is that constant lowness in view of ourselves because of sin and a constant rest in the provision of God in Christ. That is the characteristic of a Christian, of having eternal life. And I would suggest to you that it is also the basis of Christian humility. Christian humility. The humility of faith. The humility that should mark everyone who is in Christ. And so the obvious question as we go through here is not just what John was writing to them, but is to ask this personally. Does that mark you? Is confession of sin a regular part of your life? Is reliance on the grace of Christ what defines you internally? Not just outside what you say, but that inwardly you are truly trusting only in Christ alone for your relationship to the Father, for your relationship to God. And all of this begins with a right knowledge of God. Look at what he said back in verse 7 of chapter 1. Or verse 5. That God is light and in him there is no darkness of all, at all. And the one then who has a true knowledge of God has a true knowledge of self and is driven to rely only on Christ. Now Calvin did this, said this greatly in his institutes a long time ago. But he summarized what is the biblical truth that is so clear. And it's this. That in order to know ourselves, we have to have a right knowledge of God. And it goes in that order. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. And if one has that in truth and the eternal life out of which that flows, then there is, no, there is the awareness of sin and the reliance on Christ. The second thing they taught was this. The second error that John is addressing is this. They said, well, now since spirit is good and since flesh is bad, well, then Christ, his person wasn't really the eternal Son of God robed in humanity. No, no, no. He only appeared to be a man. He only appeared to be a man, in fact, though he wasn't. Or another version of that that was floating around was the idea that 
there was this really righteous man who was the Jesus, who was Jesus, and at his baptism, the Spirit of Christ came on him. He did all of these wonderful things, and then at his crucifixion, that Spirit of Christ left him. And so he wasn't the God-man, he was merely a man on whom the Spirit of Christ temporarily indwelled. That was one of their errors. And of course, there are even more variations than that. But that's basically what it was. And of course, by saying this, it destroyed not only the person of Christ, but also the very means of God's salvation. For a real man needed to suffer in the place of men, and this man needed to be more than a man. He needed to have the infinite value and glory of God in order to atone for the sins of the world, as it were, the sins of all who would believe in him. So to get the person of Christ wrong is to destroy the work of God in salvation. You can't have a wrong view of Christ and have a right view of salvation. Those two things don't go together. And so in their denial of the person of Christ, they were denying the very means of salvation that God had provided for sinners. And so what does John say about this? Well, look at what he begins his letter with. He begins with a emphasizing the reality that Christ did, in fact, come in the flesh. He said, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life and the life was manifest and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Which simplified is simply to say, the life that is in Christ, which is the message that we're proclaiming, is in fact... A life that was revealed in a real person, in real humanity, in the eternal word, and using the language of the gospel, made flesh, made flesh and dwelling among us. That Christ indeed was in flesh and that he was the son. Later, he'll put it in this way in chapter 4, verse 2. He says, by this, you know, the spirit of God Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. In fact, he says this is the spirit implied of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. The principle, the important thing for us in understanding spiritual life is this. That spiritual life is shown when there is a right view of of God, a right view of the nature and the person of Christ. That is a necessary evidence of spiritual life. Let me put it negatively. To have a wrong view about God, the nature of God, or the person of Christ, is to still be unconverted. It is to not yet have eternal life. That means then, quite plainly, that a Muslim, or a Jehovah's Witness, or a Mormon does not have eternal life because they do not have the right view of Christ. They then do not have the right view of Christ, then is to not have the right view of God. As a matter of fact, he says this in chapter 2, verse 23. Just listen. He says, Whoever, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. Listen. The one who denies the Father and the Son. In other words, to deny the truth of the Son is to deny the truth of the Father. So while an understanding of the Trinity stretches our minds, and we don't any of us completely understand it, to believe what is revealed about God 
in the person of Christ, which would include God as Father, Son, and Spirit, is necessary for salvation. That's the overall point. You cannot be saved or have a right view of salvation or a right view of God's atoning work apart from a right knowledge of God. So to deny the truth about the nature of Christ and God is to be an unbeliever. In John's words, it is to be a child of the devil and to have a spirit of antichrist. That's pretty striking and clear, isn't it? So eternal life, if you want to even kind of look at that from a different angle, is this. Eternal life is marked by this, a submission to the truth of God's word. It means what God reveals in his word, we believe. That's a mark of eternal life. If somebody cherry picks what they want out of the Bible, and I don't believe this part, I do believe this part, and they think that's okay, it's not okay. It's not okay. As a matter of fact, John would say this. Just listen in verse 6 of chapter 4. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. Clarified, listens to apostolic doctrine. Listens to the doctrine that the Spirit has given through His chosen instruments to the church, which is for us recorded on the pages of Scripture. So there is an eternal life then, a basic submission, a fundamental submission to the truth of God as He is revealed in Scripture. That is absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. Now again, somebody may have to have come to that, and there are difficult truths, but if after being taught clearly the truth, they reject that truth, then there is no evidence of spiritual life within them. Thirdly, thirdly, so the first is that spiritual life is manifest in a recognition of sin and obedience. Secondly, that there is a submission to Scripture a right understanding of God as he's revealed himself in the Bible. And there's a third. And some have taken John's teaching or that he's teaching against is this. Some who were going about and saying that, and then they were really basing this on what he taught in the gospel. So and this, is, this is also probably very likely one of the errors. That it, based on the gospel, their teaching was basically this, essentially this, that, that Christ has come and he's sort of the climax of God's redeeming work. But now that's, that's kind of off to the side. And what's important now is the Spirit. It's only this ministry of the Spirit. And so they taught essentially that a person could kind of have this unmediated uh, relationship with God simply by the Spirit. It's me and the Spirit of God. And that's part of what's behind the whole Gnostic idea of this special revelation, this unique revelation, this unique connection to the knowledge of God that's available to specific teachers, specific teachers. And so that was one of the errors then that he is addressing. And again, you think, how does that connect with us? And I would suggest this. These things, again, of course, never really go away, and we see similar ideas all the time. For us, it might be those who say this, that they have their own private knowledge or individual connection with God. That's kind of the same idea. I've got my own, I know God, I know God in my own way. I know, I know God because of my own thoughts about God. In other words, they aren't really convicted by the truth of Scripture. There's no submission to the truth of doctrine revealed in the Bible. There's no trust in God's work. They, they just have their own relationship with God. Their own private relationship with God. Among these are those who don't really need to be a part of a church or organized religion. Why would I need that? I've got my own little connection with God. It's me and God, and God loves me, and I love him as, as, I, as I think of him. I love that idea of God. That's not too far off of what John was having to deal with here. 
There's those who don't really have any desire for Scripture, no desire really to learn about Christ, no desire to serve in the church, no desire to love God's people, but they know God, and I'm spiritual and have a relationship with Him. Well, John would utterly reject that. As a matter of fact, and I won't have time to go through all of these, but let me just give you a general idea here of the centrality of Christ to the Christian life. We already looked at the first verse. He begins by saying, look, eternal life or spiritual life cannot be conceived of or experienced apart from understanding that it is in and through Christ as he's revealed himself in the person of Christ, in the humanity of Christ, and on the pages of Scripture. He says in verse 3 that that's the only way that we can have fellowship with God. And in fact, that fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. Indeed, Christ is at the center of all of this. And look what he says in verse 7. Having that reality of life, that fellowship with the Father and Son, he says, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So Christ then is the very substance and fullness of our eternal life, our reconciliation with God, his death, his resurrection. In chapter 2, he calls Jesus the advocate. For any of y'all who might be interested, and you might know this, it's the the paraclete that he mentions in the, the farewell discourse, used only of the Spirit. And if you remember there, he says, I'm going to send you another helper or another advocate. You might have different translation. Here he's saying he is the advocate with the Father. He is the one who is in the presence of the Father, and get this, who is our life and our righteousness. Christ is our life and our righteousness. You could kind of sum up what he's saying here, actually through Paul's words in Colossians 3, where he says this, when Christ, who is our life, Christ, who is our life, life and spiritual life is totally centered in the person of Christ. Our righteousness is his righteousness. Our reconciliation with God is through him and only through him. As a matter of fact, we've already read how that's inseparable from the Father. Verse 23, the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Has the Father also. It's for Christ, His appearing, that we await. We read that about it in the farewell discourse in chapter 14 this morning. He says in verse 28 of chapter 2, little children abide in Him so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. And he goes on and on. For time's sake, we won't go through this. But it is to say then that Christ is the very center of spiritual life. It is to recognize that everything is in and through Christ. And so he ends the letter, I will mention this, in chapter 5 in this way. This is really a summary, another summary. He says in verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. In other words, the person of Christ is at the center of genuine spiritual life. And the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit is never apart from a love and a trust and a desire to know Christ. He is the one who will glorify the Son. John 16, 13 through 15. The coming ministry of the Spirit is to glorify the Son. It is to bring glory to Him. So there is no salvation. 
There is no fellowship with God. There is no knowledge of God. There is no perfect model to follow. There is no eternal life apart from Christ. Now, you might, some, say, well, that's rather obvious. But I would suggest to you that it's not always so obvious. It's absolutely amazing to me to think of how many people think of Christianity apart from a sincere love for Christ. They think of Christianity apart from a love for Christ, apart from a biblically defined love for Christ. Christ is at the very center and heart of what it means to be a Christian. Christianity can be thought of in a variety of ways, of activity, of service, uh, even doing things to show the love of Jesus, but does not have that quality of a deep, deep inward desire that relies on Christ and wants to know Him. That says the truest part of me, if you ripped away everything else, is that I rely on Christ and I trust Him and I love Him. Spirituality is so often detached in almost some kind of mystical sense from the person of Christ. And we'll explain some of this a bit more. But my question to you would be, if you had to define or even say what was it or what is it that marks you as a believer, what would you say? John's answer and Scripture's answer would be that you would love Jesus Christ and obey Him. That you would love God through Christ. Can you honestly say that, that you love Him? That your Christianity is defined and centered around your love and your trust in Christ. There's a fourth issue that is helpful for us to be clear. And that's it. John is also addressing in writing this letter to clear up confusion about those who were once with John and his associates, the Christians, and no longer are with them. They left. They were a part of the group and then they left. And no doubt that was a point of confusion for some of those that John is writing. And so he brings that up in verse 19 of chapter 2. He says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But so that it would be shown that they all are not of us, they went out. They left us. They went away from us. In all likelihood, because of the context, it is those who displayed a greater love for the world. A greater love for the world than they did for Christ. And so they attached themselves to some kind of false teaching that really wasn't so much about their knowledge, desire to know God, as it was about attaching themselves with a system of belief that would justify their desire for sin and justify their own unbelief. Now, in either case, John wants to make something clear to them and to the readers and to us. And that's this. When somebody truly has spiritual life, when somebody truly has spiritual life, they persevere in faith and love. They persevere in faith in Christ and love. Yes, we stumble and we fumble and we trip up along the way. Yes, we have times of weakness. Yes, we may even have moments where we struggle with unbelief or with some aspect. But there is a struggle there. And the reality of eternal life is that those things never overwhelm, ultimately, a true child of God. In fact, they remain. They remain. When someone does not remain in the truth and does not persevere in faith and walks away from Christ or walks away from the church or walks away from a life of holiness, no, then no matter what evidence they seem to have in the past, John is saying there never was the reality of eternal life. 
There never was a genuine and a real spiritual life in that person. Now, we've covered that before. Jesus, I mean, that's, that's a theme throughout all of Scripture, actually. But Jesus addressed that directly in Matthew 13. There's many responses to the gospel, but it's only the one who produces fruit, and that fruit remains, and it endures, and it stays. So spiritual life, then, is marked by a faith in Christ, a trust in Christ, that manifests itself by believing everything that God has revealed about him in Scripture, that loves him, that relies on him, that finds him, that sees him as the center of all of your affections and your hopes and your dreams, as it were, that believes everything that God has said in his word and trust in him. This is at the heart of spiritual life. It's at the heart of spiritual life. Now, these are all then elements of spiritual life, but they don't exactly describe the character of this life, the character of this life. And so that would be the second point. The second point, what is spiritual life, what's the character of it in, in, in some of its particulars? Well, there are two essential marks. And again, we could, we could put all of these maybe under characters like faith in Christ and endurance and so forth, but I'm, I'm separating out these, these different qualities which would be more along the lines of virtues, if you will, uh, spiritual virtues that mark eternal life. And they are succinctly stated in John chapter 3, verse 10. Look at John chapter 3, verse 10. He says this. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. The one who does not practice righteousness nor the one who does not love his brother. Or we could state that positively and say this, that the children of God are marked by righteousness of life and a love for God and his people, a love for Christ and his people. There's a love for all men, yes, but there is a particular love for the people of God, a particular love for Christians. Now you might notice in that verse a phrase, I think I mentioned it earlier, but it stands out there. What do you think it is? It's this phrase, children of God, children of God. Look at what he calls them there, children of God. This is an incredible statement, and really, it is one that defines for us what spiritual life is at its heart and what it is to look like. To have a spiritual life is to be in God's family. It is to share his likeness. It is to share spiritually in his nature the very nature of God that was revealed through the humanity of Christ, that was revealed through the life of Christ. To be a child of God is to have his family likeness and to love those who are in the family through Christ. And so what I want to do is here, is just this last part, is center our thoughts on that to get what the character of this is. And really that begins back up at verse 1 of chapter 3. Look at what he says. And if you think we're bouncing around, we are a little bit. What John does is he kind of writes in these concentric circles. He kind of starts out here, and as he goes through the epistle, he just expands. He keeps circling around with these same themes, each one bringing out a different nuance. But here is one centering of those themes here in chapter 3, and that is the reality of being a child of God. And the first thing to notice about it is, then, if somebody has spiritual life, the reality of spiritual life, there is a new relationship with the Father through the Son, through Jesus. Look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 3. See how great 
a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. The children of God. That is an incredible statement. And that is at the inner life, really. This is, this is now starting to kind of get down into it even a little more and say, what is, the, what is the way that a child of God thinks about God, thinks about the Father, thinks of themselves in relation to Him? Now notice here that He calls God the Father. The Father. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. By calling Him the Father here, He's really identifying him more in his relationship with the son. We're not going to get too complicated on this, but he is to say simply that he is the father because the son is the son. And the son is the son of God because God the father is God the father. This is Trinitarian language. He is the father who sent the son. And here, however, his identity is much more than just his role within the Trinity. He is the father who is not only the father because of who he is in relation to the son, but he is the father of spiritual children in his son. He is the father of Christians, you could say. And he is the father who is so because of his great love, his great love for them. In John chapter, in the John, the gospel chapter three, he said this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so the greatness of his love, the greatness of the love of the Father for his children is in sending the Son. As a matter of fact, he's going to say that. I'll just mention it briefly. In chapter 4, he says this. In this is love, verse 10. Not that we loved God, but here. But that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The ultimate expression of the love of the Father, as we've been looking at as we go through the accounts of the crucifixion of the Passion Week, as we're looking at the suffering of the Son, as we saw Christ in the garden praying to the Father if any other way, if there were any other way to purchase these people apart from the sufferings of the cross. And we saw there that the answer, of course, was no. There is no other way. And in that, we see not only the submission of the Son and the glory of God, but we see both the love of the Son and the love of the Father. The love of the Father in providing that Son to be a propitiation for our sins. The love of the Son for the Father and for His people to be that propitiation for sin. What is propitiation? It's a big word. It simply means this, to be before the Father the satisfaction of everything that's necessary for our salvation. It means his enduring of the wrath of God against sin, bearing the curse of the law. It means then the removal of the sin in Christ from us that we might be received into the family of God. And so he says here, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. So at the very heart of spiritual life is to say that when we think of God, we think of him in this way, as our Father who has shown us love in Christ. That we think of him in that way. That is that we think of him not only as the father, but we think of him as our father. You think of him as my father in Christ. There is a personal relationship. And those who have come to know God, to know his love in Christ, though not perfectly, but do truly and spiritually hunger to know that love of God in Christ more and more. It's not some detached knowledge of God. 
It's not some detached knowledge of God's love, but it is specifically His love shown to you, the sinner in the Son. That He's saying here that it would be spiritually perceived. Look at what He says. See how great a love. Obviously, Christ has ascended with the Father. What He's saying is see, consider, think about, understand, know in your heart the reality of the love of the Father in His Son to you that you would be called children of God. So do you relate to the Father in this way? Do you relate to? Do you want to? Do you seek to understand it? Does that truth resonate in your inner man, in your heart, in your affections, and in your life? And notice then again here what, what, what is the status then of those who have eternal life. They are children of God. This is the new relationship. A new relationship to the Father. Him as the Father. We as spiritual children. I just want to note, he mentioned this first in the gospel. Don't turn there. But he says in John chapter 1, verse 12, he said this. This is the first and only other use of John of children of God before we get to the epistle. He says this. He says in verse 12, As many as received him, to them he, the he here is Christ, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, this status, this, this identity as a child of God is something that comes through Christ. It comes through Christ. But I want you to notice this as well. Well, let me, let me, let me mention one other verse to you here. And that is this. That the fullness of this change in status... The fullness of this new relationship then that a believer has, a child of God, with the Father is defined by Christ's own relationship with the Father. Let me just read to you one verse here. And it's this. This is what he said at the end of the gospel after the resurrection. He's speaking here to Mary Magdalene and he says this. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Okay, there's the Father. The Father you know is God. The Father whom I said sent me. The Father whose love has been shed abroad on you by my own sacrifice and resurrection. I've not yet ascended to the Father, he says. But listen to the second part. But go to my brethren. The first time he calls them that. My brethren. My brothers. He says, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. In other words, you relate now to the Father and to God as I did. As I did. Through my own relationship with Him, as I called Him Father, you now can call Him Father through me and in me. As He was my God, speaking there of His humanity, He is also your God. This is intimate, intimate relationship. But what makes this so... Great, this love so great, particularly in this chapter, is even something more than that. It's something more than that. It is because of the reality of the condition before being a child of God. It is, look what he says again in verse, verse 10. Verse 10. Well, actually, you can look at verse 8. We read it earlier. The one who practices sin is of the devil. The devil has sinned from the beginning. Son of God has appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And then he says in verse 10... By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. 
That's, again, typical John's statement that puts everything in absolute black and white. But he's saying, look, there are only two kind of children. There are no half-breeds in the kingdom of God. One is either a child of God in the full sense of the word, or one is a child of the devil. These are striking terms, but these are the, the terms that John puts it in. And so the greatness here of the love is further realized by understanding the change that God has brought about in our own situation. Indeed, we were the children of the devil by nature. That is to say that we aligned ourselves naturally and willingly to the desires of the devil. Because of our fallenness, because of our natural state, our natural inherent wickedness that we inherited from Adam in the fall, we naturally aligned ourselves with the will and the thinking and the ways of the devil. As a matter of fact, he says this at the end of the... He says, we know in chapter 5, verse 19, that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He told the leaders in John 8, we've looked at this many times, you are of your father who? The devil. You're of your father, the devil. And you're like, oh, that's just those wicked old Pharisees. Of course, they were of the devil. Listen to how he describes the church, writing to the Ephesians. He says, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, who had the spirit of disobedience working in us, he says in verse 2. So that was our condition. And so when he comes here and he says, look, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that you are not a child of the devil, you are not a child of wrath, you are not a child of destruction, you are not one who is defined by the ways and the thinking of the devil and of the world that is in rebellion to God. In fact, you are a child of God. You are a child of God. You have been made by him a member of his family through his son. That's why this love is so great. That's why it's so great. And I would suggest to you that we learn from the way that John phrases this, that we learn from the way that he talks about it. And I mean that in this way. There is a great tendency of a me-centeredness in Christianity. Would you agree with that? There is a vast tendency to have a me-centeredness even among those who profess the name of Christ. There is a great emphasis on God's love to the sinner, and hallelujah, we do recognize that. We sing about it. We sing praise to God for that. But in doing so, there is an emphasis more on the sinner and the individual in such a way that really the sinner themselves, the individual, becomes the center stage and not God. And not God. It subtly becomes this about my salvation rather than this, the greatness and the glory of God in providing salvation for me. That's very subtle because it's not all wrong ideas on the other side. It is to change the emphasis. And I would just make this as a general remark that we need to be very aware of this and this is important for this reason plus what I'll mention in a minute. Because when Satan tempted Jesus in the garden or actually not in the garden, but in the wilderness. And he quoted, you know, throw yourself off and, you know, he'll send his angels and you won't strike your foot against the stone and so on and so forth. He quoted scripture fairly and accurately. That was a fair quotation of scripture. 
You can go back and say sometimes the words were changed or whatever, but he quoted it just as Jesus and the apostles have quoted Scripture. Sometimes they were free quotations. Sometimes they were summary. Sometimes they were exact. Sometimes they quoted from the Masoretic text. Sometimes they quoted from the Septuagint. It was different. Satan wasn't wrong in the way that he quoted Scripture. What did he do? What did he change? Anybody remember? He changed the emphasis. He changed the emphasis. He took a psalm about trusting God and he made it into a test about presuming on God. He changed the emphasis. That is the subtlety of how he works. And I would suggest that there is an element of that in this new idea of Christianity that puts all of the attention and the focus on the sinner and diminishes the glory of God in his saving work. Let me maybe make that more clear. It's a subtle man-centeredness that takes a great truth and twists the emphasis, twists the emphasis of God's work. So the emphasis of John is on the Father and his work and the Son, the amazement of his love toward the sinner that we should be called children of God. So true spiritual life then marvels in the Father's love and in Christ in a way that does this. You ready? It humbles the heart. It produces within the sinner worship, submission. It it produces within the sinner that sense where we say he must increase and I must decrease in the words of John. And when there is a failure to understand this, as subtle as it may be, the consequence is this. You may think, oh, well, that's just a matter of semantics. Let me suggest to you this, that when we don't get that right and when God no longer ceases to be the center stage of our affections and the greatness and the glory of his work in Christ becomes our passion and what we long to pursue, it weakens the need for repentance. It weakens the need for repentance. It weakens the need for repentance and its fruit. And it makes many who are unsaved and unregenerate feel comfortable in salvation, though there is in their life no real worship, no obedient love for Christ, and no true desire for Christ to know Him. And that's what happens if it gets wrong, if we get that wrong. It's extremely, extremely important that we understand that God is the center of salvation. His glory in Christ is the center of the believer's affections. Eternal life is centered around and rejoices in with all of the saints and that picture and angels that we get in Revelation where we say, worthy is the Lamb, to Him be glory and honor. To Him be praise. The Lamb who was slain. I don't think that that's what you and I observe. For those of us who would also see this, and sometimes much of popular Christianity. And that's dangerous. But that's not what John leads us to here. He says, look, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, we who were children of the devil. We have been made in His Son, sons and daughters. And it's not just a new status. It comes with a new nature. And that is at the heart of spiritual life. It's the heart of spiritual life. This new relationship comes with a new nature. To be a child of God is not simply to have a new status. It is to have a completely new internal reality that defines you. Now, we already hinted at this in chapter, verses 5 through 7 of chapter 1. When he says that God is in the light, right? He, in him is there is no darkness at all. And therefore, those who know him in that fellowship also walk in the light, right? So he's hinting at it there, that we share something with God in terms of our desires and in terms of our affections and in terms of our loves. Here he states it even more clearly. And actually the the immediate context, if you look back up at verse 29, if you're following along, 
in verse uh, chapter 2. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is what? Born of him. In other words, has experienced the new birth. The new birth, the idea of birth, means then that you have been birthed in a way that you share something in common with God, and that is here, righteousness. Righteousness, again, that is centered and comes through His Son. Righteousness. He mentioned this in John 3 in his conversation to Nicodemus. You'll remember, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And just as a side note, that is a, the, the positive side of being born again is just glorious. But what those who have eternal life also understand the greatness of that on the other side of it. Because to say that you need to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God is to say that we are by nature, just as we had mentioned earlier, so utterly thoroughly wicked that there's no reformation that's possible. We need a totally new life. And we need it from God because we're so corrupt. Because we're so fallen that the only way that we can enter into this relationship isn't by doing better, isn't by being more religious. It is receiving from God through Christ and by the Holy Spirit a completely new nature. Completely new nature. So what is this nature? What is this birth? Well, let me define it maybe simply like this. It is to say this. It is the Spirit's work in the sinner that removes from the sinner the natural darkness of the mind to spiritual truth, that removes in the sinner a natural rebellion to God and His holiness. And in fact, not only does it remove it, but then the sinner is able to see God as He truly is and to delight in it. And in seeing God as He truly is, sees ourselves as we truly are, which is not only His image bearers, but His guilty image bearers. It is then to see Christ as He is, as the provision of the Father, for salvation and to embrace him. That all comes with regeneration. Regeneration is that removal of that natural darkness and rebellion to God and it's also attended with the gift of faith wherein we trust Christ and we rest in him and we rely on him alone. As a matter of fact, it's described this way and in another way in verse 9 of chapter 5. Just listen. He says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. In other words, it has the assurance inwardly. It has not just a lot of outward reasons, but it has inwardly that assurance, that, that confidence, that certainty, that what God has said about Christ is true. It has the testimony in himself here that comes from the very Spirit of God who opened their eyes to it, to to the testimony. He says this, as the testimony himself, the one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, verse 11, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. And so the new birth is opened up to those realities. And, and it comes with the faith that is the gift of God. And it embraces Christ in all of who He is. And it is to be a child of God then. And this new nature, this new inward spiritual reality is marked, as we already mentioned, by fellowship with God and others who are in the spiritual family. It's to have an entirely new orientation to life that comes, and this is the important part, 
that comes through a knowledge of Christ and the Father. That comes through a knowledge of God. He says, look at what he says after that in verse 1, second half. He says, for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Why? Because those who are God's children have a life that is of a completely different nature than the world. It's completely different. It's complete. As a matter of fact, it's in contrast to it in almost every way. Everything that is true spiritually about a child of God, of one who has eternal life, if that is you, how you perceive the world, what you trust in, what you hope for, what you delight in, stands in contrast to the world. Listen to what he says in verse 15 of chapter 2. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, he uses, well, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And so a question then with this part is if we have spiritual life, is can you say that the things that you desire and the things that you delight in, the things that you hope in, the things that you trust in, the way that you view the world, everyone in it and what God is doing is defined by who God is revealed in Christ and on the pages of Scripture? Or are you more like the world? If you're in Christ, then you are a totally new creature. You are, in fact, he says, a child of God. And there, for that reason, you stand in opposition to everything that defines the inner delights and trust and hopes and thoughts of the world. You stand in contrast to it. And for that reason, the world doesn't know you. If we have a Christian church and in our own lives and we're hardly distinguishable from the world and there's nothing about what makes us tick and about what's evident in our life that's different than the way the world thinks, then why in the world, John would ask, do you think that you have spiritual life? Because a child of God, the world doesn't know them. They're unrecognizable. They should think that you are different. And so that's what he gets. So do you have this mark of spiritual life? Simple question, do your desires, do your hopes, do your loves, your perspective on everything stand in contrast to the world because of your knowledge of God in Christ, because of who God is? Do the persuasions of the world seen in movies, advertisements, incessantly on TV and so forth have the same power in you as those who openly deny Christ? That's maybe one way to ask it. Or do we see through it and go, no, those things are wrong because God tells me the right way to think and God is whom I love? Lastly, and I'll have to go just mention this in summary form, uh, and this actually was one of the main parts I wanted to get to, but uh, we'll just mention it here. It's this, that a new life then reflects the life of Christ. The spiritual life of the children of God is in contrast, as we just mentioned, and it's a spiritual life that models what was in the life of Christ. Look at what he says here in verse uh, two, actually, of chapter three. Beloved, now we are children of God. It's not a year yet as appeared as what we will be, but we know this, that when he appears, and the he here is probably most likely Christ. There's, if you try to trace the he's through John, you're going to be confused a lot of time, but that is because of the union of the Father and the Son. And so often he'll use a pronoun that really, it's hard to tell who he's talking about, but it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference. But here I think it's pretty clear that he's referring to 
Christ, the Son. Just as he said back in verse 28, that when he appears, we will have confidence and won't shrink away. So he's likely here talking about this time of Christ's return. When he appears, he says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone, in verse 3, who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. So what's the main idea there? Simply this. That Christ, the person of Christ, particularly Christ, as he's revealed in his humanity, the eternal Son of God, is the very not only foundation of our spiritual life, the one through whom we receive life, but he is also the model and the measure of what our life has looked like, what true spiritual life looks like. So that's the idea. So right here, what we, in this life, his people, though we reflect it dimly, will in one day reflect it perfectly. But it is in Christ that we find the very definition of what spiritual life should look like. Now, he says this all over. I'm going to mention just a couple here briefly. It's this. First of all, it means, as was already hinted at before, that there is the mark of obedience in your life. Do you realize that even Christ going to the cross, though it was a measure of God's love, was a measure of his obedience to the Father because he loved the Father? So if you want to know what does obedience look like in the Christian life, it looks like this. It looks like the cross. It looks like the cross. That's the standard of obedience in our life that God calls us to. So that should always, if nothing else, be a a measure of our humility to go, I'm not that. I always have something that fails in that line. I don't obey him as I should, but I want to, and I want to pursue that. So much to say, but let me mark the next one. And it is then also love for God's children. It's love for God's children. We read that earlier. But as Christ loved those given to him by the Father, so we love those who share in the same life that we do in Christ. There is a unique love for the brethren. And let me just say this. He mentions that, uh, oh, in many places, but let me just make this. He says this, or let me make this suggestion, or not suggestion, but exhortation is to say this, that if you love the brethren, you love to be with God's people. That's pretty simple. Part of the doctrine of the church and part of why attendance is so important and we see someone's commitment to the church is oftentimes a measure of their spiritual life because if you love God, you love his people and you want to be under the preaching of his word and you want to be where his people are and you want to do things with them and you want to receive that fellowship that you can only have with other Christians. Somebody who has no interest in attending the gathering of God's people together gives no strong evidence of having eternal life within them, of having spiritual life. Well, I've run over. Um, Let me just make this one passing comment. Is this, that there's also to say those two things aren't necessarily separate. To love God, to be obedient to God, is also to love His people. In other words, those aren't two totally separate things. Listen to what he says. By this we know that we love the children of God. How do you know if you love the children of God? We wouldn't necessarily expect the second part of his answer, but he says this in chapter 5, verse 2. When we love God and we observe his commandments. But this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments aren't burdensome. You want to be a better husband? You want to be a better wife? A better student? A better child? A better friend? A better Christian? If you want to say that I love God and I want to love his people better, God's answer to how to do that is this. Keep his commandments. Obey him. 
Forgive, serve, pray for, love as God commands us to do those things. And that proves our love for God. It also means this. If we want to grow in our obedience and our expression of love, it has to begin by growing in our knowledge of God in Christ. It has to begin there. If you want to be a better lover of people, you don't focus on just the things that you do. You focus on being a better lover of God and Christ. And that will overflow into greater obedience and overflow in greater love for others. Well, let me pray for us. And in this we'll dismiss us because of time. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of 1 John. Help us to consider these things and help us as your people to delight and glory in Christ and, and be amazed that we are called, we who know you, children of God. Thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Christ, for that gift of new life in him and by the Spirit. May we each day pursue that we would be a, a better follower of Christ and will demonstrate his life in us. And I do pray, Father, that any in here who don't have that life, who, who have it only in name and not in reality, or have even listened to this and still made up their own mind that says that they have their own definition of God, their own definition of what it means to know you, and it's not centered on your revelation, I pray that you would show them their error and that you would show them the light of Christ and you would shine it in their heart and that they would believe and receive Christ and submit to him even today and truly be a child of God. Thank you again for your grace and your mercy to us and your dear and your beloved son. To him be the glory and in his name we pray, amen.